Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you, thank you Jason. Um, can I say that, that, that Lisa and Celine are really the public, tangible demonstrations of what is our theme this morning? The power of the cross to bring together and cause people to love each other, even though their narratives, even their theologies may be different, they have this radical, sacrificial love for each other because they are in Christ. You and I have probably discovered in your pilgrimage that really super-duper, hyper-spiritual people are extremely self-centered. They are obsessed with themselves, how they're doing in comparison and contrast to how others are doing, where they are on the graph of the spiritual walk. They are ultimately narcissistic. Well, it was true of the Gnostics. Uh, those are the folks that, that John had to deal with in, in the church in Ephesus. It's true of Eastern mystical religion. It's true, certainly, of the New Age today. Um, in a book by Andrew called Becoming F Fully Human, she says, I'm not subject to claustrophobia except in New Age bookshops where the bookshelves seem to close on me with their weight of me, me, me. Nothing on the shelves points me towards any other person except perhaps a small group of like-minded friends huddling together as they search for self-fulfillment within the blankness of the universe that ends with the death of the one being that matters in it, me, 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 me. Well, that was the issue in Ephesus that the Apostle John had to address. Within evangelical Christianity, of which I am unquestionably a part, there has developed what Professor Jim Packer calls hot tub religion. It's wonderful to be in a hot tub if you've ever been in one. It's like being in a bath of bubbles. It, it, you just feel really good. And, and many people imagine that that's what really Christianity is all about. It's in order for us to, to have personal fulfillment and pleasure, to be personally at peace. It's a hot tub religion. Sometimes even the language that we use, I think, can be misunderstood. We talk about, about those who have Jesus as their own and personal savior, and we know why we said that. Because we know that faith is not just simply being part of a system, it's not doing the business, it's not following the rights. It is important for us to have an encounter with Christ and to have responded by faith. We need to own it ourselves. But listen to the language. Own, personal. It's almost as if it's an individualistic thing. And we develop hymns we have within the evangelical tradition of coming to the garden alone. Just a closer walk with thee on the Jericho Road. There's just room for two, Jesus and you. And we have this sort of lone ranger piety. Well, yesterday morning we were looking at the first mark of those who are truly the children of God. Uh, the, these Gnostics, the, these characters who were causing such mayhem in the church in Ephesus, they were the ones who claimed to truly know God. Well, says John, is it possible for us to know ourselves that we are truly children of light, that we are the children of the age to come, that we are the children who have eternal life? Can we know it? And the first mark we looked at were those who, because God is light, walk in the light, they seek to live a life of holiness and obedience. That was the first mark. Now we come this morning to the second. It's a major emphasis of John's epistle. This is the mark of the real McCoy. If you have this, you are part of the community of faith. Turn with me to chapter 2 and verse 7. 
Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The second mark, the second key mark of those who have been born of God, who have the seed of God, is that they display the love of God. Now, it is not requiring rocket science to discover that you cannot love on your own. You need to love someone, and someone needs to love you. That is the very essence of us being made in the divine image. We reflect the trinity of God who have eternally loved Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You might wonder, as part of the missionary call, that, that Jesus asked his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Many of us think it odd, even on the day of Pentecost, that when, after Peter has completed preaching and people are responding from all these nations of the world, they are immediately baptized. There's no catechetical exercise. There's no extended training. Immediately they are baptized because it is not possible to display the marks of the new age, of the age which is to come, of the children of light, unless we are together. It is essentially in community that we express God's love. Now, John says this is not something new. This, of course, was written as part of the Old Testament. I know many of you, beginning of the year, decide that you're going to read through the entire Bible in the year. You've done this so many times. Uh, you've made a commitment to do it. I'm going to read the entire Bible through the year. And then suddenly, there's a hiccup. And the hiccup is always in Leviticus. <laughs> there's just so much of this you can take. All these prescriptions and requirements and rabbinical laws, like, really? And then you come to an absolute gem, which is Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is in just this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. John says this is not new. This is part of the scriptures that we have received. But in Jesus, we have it in a new way. It has been revealed to us with a new rabbinic interpretation. Who is our neighbor? Well, of course, the rabbis had clearly distinguished between who is neighbor and who is not our neighbor, and certainly they were Jews. They were Jews who kept the law. They were not certain Jews who were dealing with Gentiles. They, they, this, was, this was clear in terms of their interpretation, but not for Jesus, no, no. Our neighbor is not those who we like. They're not those from our ethnic background. They're not those from our social standing. They're not those who've been educated as we've been educated. These people are different from us. But if they've been brought into the new mankind, we together, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, from all these ethnicities and backgrounds, are going to together demonstrate what it means to be the age which is to come. When all that is broken and vitiated by the fall will be restored and brought into harmony in Jesus Christ. We are the demonstration of this just now. And our mankind is to express this. I tell you, I, I, I do miss being minister in Lucan. I really do. It was such a joy and privilege to minister there for 31 years. And, and the waves of growth on that church really came in, 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 in two sections. One were people from Catholic background. We developed what we called a reformed Catholic model of ministry. Of we sought to demonstrate continuity with the Church Catholic, and yet we were part of the Reformation of the Church Catholic. 
as those who were heirs of the Reformation. That was the style and process of our ministry. So people from Catholic background would come into our church. They would not be rebaptized because they were part of the Catholic Church. And they become part of our community. And there were great waves. And then came the immigrant wave, following the Celtic Tiger, people who were coming in from all the nations of the world. So that by the time we left, I think we had some 27 nationalities. It was just the most amazing experience to minister in such context in Ireland. I, I felt when I was celebrating communion with elders who were black and white and, and fr from different parts of Europe even, that, that, that this was a foretaste of heaven. This is what we are to be on earth, people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, uh, people who are unionists, can I say this, and people who are Republican, who are in Christ, are the new mankind. And we are to express it in our love for one another. It's the mark of those who have eternal life. It is, can I say to you, it's the wow factor in this fallen world. When people experience it, they just are wowed by this, Jesus said. All people will know that you are my disciples because you have this. You just love one another. For those who walk in the light, John says, you, you will see things as they truly are. You're not going to stumble. You're not going to cause others to stumble. Because wh when you walk in the light, the truth of reality is, is unveiled to you. It, it is not that the gospel creates a new truth for you to believe in. What happens is through the gospel, your eyes are opened. You begin to walk in the light and you see things as they have been created to be. And you, you start realize you're part of, of a world that God created that has a definite structure. There is a material order to the world. There's a causal order. There's a social order. But there's also a moral order. And, and when you walk in the light, you suddenly recapture and rediscover as those how things are meant to be. This is what we have been created but if you live in darkness, if you walk in darkness, you live contrary to what is the moral order that God has created and the consequences, as we have discovered in this world, are absolutely dire. But if you live in the light, if you live in the light, you are utterly fulfilled because you're living as it will be. What has happened in our cultures, of course, today, caused by all sorts of factors, usually selfishness and brokenness, by globalization, by people motivated by capitalist principles exclusively, which means that happiness and fulfillment is in buying things. You are bombarded with this. It's part of the hidden persuaders that you are confronted with on a daily basis that you will be happy, you will be satisfied if you buy something more. The whole capitalist structure of our society is based upon this. And it's based on a totally individualistic philosophy. Listen to Yuval Levin, who is a Jewish sociologist. He says, in liberating many individuals from oppressive social constraints, we have also estranged many from their families, and unmoored them from their communities, work and faith. In accepting a profusion of options in every part of our lives to meet our particular needs and wants, we have also unraveled the established institution of an earlier era, and with it the public's broader faith in institutions of all kinds. We have set loose a scourge of loneliness and isolation that we are still afraid to acknowledge as the distinct social dysfunction of our age of individualism. People long to be loved because they were created to love and to be loved. Perhaps more bluntly and with the typical flair of Malcolm Mugridge, he describes our condition as this, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction. 
Western man keeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. That's where we're moving. And whether you talk to believers or unbelievers or where anyone is in terms of the spectrum of society today, they long deep down in their souls for a community that morality once provided. Your neighbor wants to be rid of crime. They don't want to be part of broken families. They long for days where, where they, their neighbor will come and visit them. And often it takes disasters to produce this basic longing social need for which we have been created for to come to the fore. Look what happened at the Grenfell Tower fire. Devastating, painful, people without their homes and, and all the people came from all parts, churches, synagogues, imams and, you know, mosques. They, they, they all began to help. And people began to say, we, we, we've never known anything like this. This is an amazing community. We, we are being supportive and, and encouraging to each other because, you see, we've been created for this. And the people of God, those who are the community of faith, are meant to model this. This is what it means to be the children of light. It's why, at this point, John makes this radical contrast between the children of light and the children of darkness. Turn over with you to 1 John chapter 3. And, and I'm going to read from verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is then how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn, condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Well, this is a contrast, really, between Jesus and Cain. We, we don't talk much about Cain in, in the Western world, but in, in Jewish society, Cain was an archetypal figure, major archetypal figure. Philo, the Jewish historian, wrote four major tomes on the life of Cain. Now, now John is concerned that we, we focus upon the fashion with, passion rather, which fueled Cain's jealousy uh, and drove him to such hatred that he murdered his brother Abel. Well, this is so evidently in our world, isn't it? The mark of Cain. The 20th century is an appalling testimony to the scale and scope of evil. It's of staggering proportions. The list is endless. The Ottoman massacre of one and a half million. The Armenian slaughter in World War I. The Rwanda and, and Sudanese genocide in the 90s, in which nearly three million people died. The Ukraine terror famine. Auschwitz. Birkenbau. The attempt to extinguish 
by murdering some three million Jews, the rape of Nanking, the Burma railway incident in World War II, the Soviet gulags, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Cambodian killing fields, the massacres of Bangladesh and Yugoslavia. And today, so it continues in Israel, in Palestine, and ISIS, and the brutality of a Syrian regime, millions upon millions upon millions of people slaughtered. It is the mark of Cain. Now, compare this, brothers in Christ, compare this to the life of Jesus. A life of love. And for us, it's the sign that we have passed from death to life, that we are truly in Christ. I, I want to say this carefully and not be misunderstood. The, the, the two evidences that we use in evangelicalism as to whether or not a person is a Christian or not, is if they have a conversion story, is one. And secondly, whether they have a sum of knowledge that they're able to articulate clearly the distinctive evangelical doctrines. Well, those two things are really important, let me tell you that. I believe passionately in conversion, that men and women need to be born of God. People need to be taught what is distinctive about their faith. There is something liberating about the assurance of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. But John mentions neither of them. The mark, the supreme mark of us having been passed from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ that we really love them the Jesus way. It's the ex it is the supreme expression of Christian virtue. We see it in the life of Jesus. That's why the contrast is between Cain and Christ. And you see it in two ways, says John. One, in how he acts and lives and dies sacrificially. The image he creates is, is someone in the Middle East who is wearing many, many garments because of the weather conditions. And they're discarding them one by one in humility, in weakness, in servanthood, and in sacrifice. This is the picture that John is creating of what it means to love. But, but secondly, he says he's not only doing this in terms of an act of response out of his emotion. It means in practice he is actually doing something. He's not just saying something. What is this strange thing called love? Well, let me just say for a moment to, to you that, that it's, not, it's not friendship. Uh, fr friendship love is, is wonderful. I, I, can't, I find this hard to believe. I, I haven't been in, in anger now for for nearly 40 years. On two occasions, I, I normally walk from where I'm staying uh, to the church, and on both occasions, people who I haven't seen for years have stopped their cars and come out just to give me a hug. Well, I am a hugger. Not just Bishop Henry's a hugger, I'm a hugger. And, and, and they just hug me. These are friends. Friends I haven't seen. For, it's, friendship is the most wonderful thing. Well, you go to a person's house and you, you're not given a cup and saucer, you're given a mug. Um, you're not brought into the living room, you're brought into the kitchen. Uh, these are friends. But, but, but friendship is, is reciprocal. It requires that you give and receive in friendship. Jesus' love is not necessarily reciprocated. And, and, and it's not kindness. <laughs> love is kindness. They're, they're, people are kind when they love. But <laughs> it's, it's rather like if you have if you've toothache. And, and, and you go to the chemist, the pharmacist, and ask for some help, and they'll give you a toothache tincture, and they're being very kind to support you. But, but when you go to the dentist, and they ask you to open their mouth, it's much more like love. <laughs> Where this machine suddenly is penetrating this tooth, and you're going, ah, will it, won't it, will I feel the pain? No, no. Love is not just kindness, and it's not filial either in terms of 
the relationships you have with, with children and grandchildren. I, I have two children, Peter who's in, in Minneapolis, Kerry who's in, in, in Fermanagh in Enniskillen with our grandchildren. I, it's just wonderful to be a grandparent. I, I hadn't realized this was such fun. It's the most wonderful thing and, and there is this natural bonding and you would do almost anything for them. You would sacrifice anything for their children. But Jesus is talking about loving our enemies. People who are not our friends, people to whom we do want to be kind, people to whom we have not a natural bonding, people who have a different narrative, a different perspective, a different political allegiance, a different color of skin. What is love then? Well, love is an act of the will. It's not an emotion because it's commanded. You can't command an emotion. You're commanded to love. Jesus didn't die for us because it was fun. He hung there for love because it had to be done. It's an act of the will. Love is an act of the will whereby we, like Jesus, sacrificially give ourselves away and in doing so seek the supreme good of another, to bless another. In, in ethics, we call it the summum bonum, the supreme good. That's what we're focusing upon. We want to really bless them beyond measure. So, so in love, as an act of the will, we are sacrificially giving ourselves away in order to focus not upon our own needs, but to bless another person, to seek their good, and in doing so, notice it's sacrificial, but it's sacrificial in such a way that we're actually doing something. Dear children, he says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. When you come to the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention, sometimes I think you're almost overwhelmed, are you not? These amazing stories of people and of their ministries, and those who are suffering for the gospel, and, and, and people are, who, who are seeking to communicate the faith in, in, in dark and difficult circumstances. And, and, and you are moved. And often we are moved simply in our emotions. But love, you see, is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. It needs more than a sentiment. It requires what Jonathan Edwards, the great American philosopher, theologian, called the inclination of the soul. By the soul or by the heart, he didn't mean that which was the source of what we feel, but that which was at the very center and core of who we are. It affects how we feel, it affects how we think, it affects the decisions that we make. The inclination of the soul is stirred and we are willing to actually do something sacrificially and all of this based on the character of God himself will you turn to first John chapter 4 and read from verse 7 dear friends let us love one another for love comes from God everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, says God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Brothers and sisters, the vastness, the vastness of the universe just astounds us. The, the nine major 
planets in our solar system range in distance from the sun from 36 million to about 2 trillion 664 billion miles. And each moves around the sun in exact precision with, with orbits ranging from 88 days for Mercury to some 248 years for Pluto. The sun is only one minor star in the one hundred billion orbs which comprise our Milky Way galaxy. If you were to hold out a cent or, or a penny, that, that coin would block out 15 million stars from your view if your eyes could see with that power. Wow. No wonder the psalmist wrote, Yahweh, our Lord, how great is your name throughout the earth. Above the heaven is your majesty, chanted by the mouths of children, babes in arms. I look up to the heavens made by your fingers, at the moon, at the stars you set in place. What is man that you should spare a thought for him? The son of man that you should care for him. And this God who has created the vastness of this amazing universe is in his very essence, love. God is love. No wonder Dante in his famous divine comedy says, it is love that moves the sun and all the stars. Who are the children of light? Who are those who are true followers of Jesus Christ? Well, some would say that a Christian is someone who believes in the teaching of Jesus. Well, that is correct, but the devil also believes. He knows what's true. And someone would say, well, a Christian is someone who's trusting in Jesus. Well, that is also true, but Sometimes we don't trust him the way we ought to trust him. At that moment, are we not Christians? Or, or, or a Christian is someone who lives with a Christian lifestyle. Yeah, that is a Christian. But we are so inconsistent, so fickle. Who are the true believers? Well, it's a matter, says John, of cause and effect. Love is the cause. Love is the effect. God is love. Those who are in God through Christ, they love one another. So that everyone who is born of God, that's in the aorist tense, which means in Greek something in the past that has present consequences, Everyone who's been born of God will bear the fruit of love in the present. Everyone who knows God, that's in the present tense, knows that God is love and is therefore loving. Therefore, those who are unloving are not of God. They are the children of darkness. If you do not love, you do not know God. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who I first read of using the expression that love is for us in mission the ultimate apologetic. It is great to have people like Ravi Zacharias and those in ministry whose intellects are such that it's possible for them to give a clear and sound apologetic and reason for why we believe what we believe. But ultimately, what draws people is this. It is the love of God which has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is shared abroad in our relationships with one another. We follow the sacrifice of Christ. We live as those who are under the cross. I I discovered as a pastor that when you went to visit a person's home, their expectation was, why is he here? What does he want? What does he want now? Is it, is it to be secretary of something or to teach in the Sunday school or 
to join the choir or what, what is it, what is it, you see. I didn't, that was not my style as a pastor. I wanted these people to be loved beyond anything else. So I would visit them without intentionality, except to love them. I would just let them tell their stories and share with me what was going on in their lives and their heartaches and their stresses and their fears and, 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 and bringing the love of God into that situation by just praying for them, by, by, by not asking them to do anything. Sometimes in our thinking and even in our strategy for mission, we are so much governed by business models you know, we want mission statements and vision statements and five-year strategies, and I'm sure all that's important. But the heart of what we do as the missioners of God is that we love. It's those who are truly born of God. In fact, Jesus puts it very clearly in John chapter 17, where he prays for the unity of his people that they might express a oneness that he has with the Father in such a way that they will love one another with such intensity that the world will believe. Well, I would love to tell you that this is the life of the church that we have in the 21st century. I discovered a few years ago in Christianity Today that there was a report that there are some 37,000 Christian denominations. Really? It's, it's a combination of I don't like what you're doing or that's not distinctive enough and I'm going to form my own combined with an American entrepreneurial spirit uh, where you're going to do all of these things and you will ignore everything that's ever been there before uh, and you will come to Ireland and, and you will ignore that Patrick has ever been here or Columba or Columbanus has ever preached and you're going to start all from scratch again. And yet another denomination is founded. Brothers and sisters, we need desperately in the church. And I want to tell you that it is in mission that the tangible nature of our oneness in Christ has been expressed more than in any other area. Not through the institutional churches, I have to tell you, but through the faith agencies that are primarily represented at the Bangor Worldwide Mission Convention. Where, where, where people are being brought as the followers of Jesus Christ from all sorts of Baptist and Pado-Baptist and Presbyterian and Pentecostal and whatever together. But because of their love for Christ and for the gospel, they work in oneness. They learn to love one another to, in order to achieve the mission of God because it's inextricably linked to that mission. Rodney Stark, who is an American sociologist, um, I wrote a fascinating book called The Rise of Christianity, how it developed in the first periods of the first and second century. And really the heart of it was really very simple. In, in the cities of that time, there were epidemics which would have come regularly, plagues which were common. And because the people were living in high-density, unsanitary urban areas, a third of those cities would be completely wiped out. So the people, as the plagues came, would head for the mountains to escape. And the Christian believers head for the, headed for the cities to love and to care for those who are dying. And they died with them, many of them. And it transformed the perception of these Christian people. Love was the ultimate apologetic. And I have to say, and most of those who were leading the posse to get back into the city when the people were dying were women. Does that surprise you? It's been the story of the mission of the church. When the men wouldn't go, the women would come in droves, and they would lead, they would lead it. I, I know it was women who were in the forefront because the Roman emperor said, there are too many Christian women. This is a slight aside, but it gives me an opportunity to plug my book, Equal to Rule. Some people imagine, you see, that the whole issue of women in leadership 
and women taking positions of ministry in the life of the church came about because some liberal theologians at the beginning of the 20th century decided to ignore the Apostle Paul and, and uh, you know, just allow women to do things which really they ought not to be doing. Let me tell you this movement for women in ministry and leadership began with the mission of Christ's church and its expansion and explosion in the 19th century. And even though the established churches, the Episcopal, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Baptists were really reticent about this, not Hudson Taylor, oh no, not C.T. Studd. He had all these extraordinarily gifted women who he was encouraging to take positions of leadership, to teach the scriptures, to expound the word of God, to carry the responsibility and back home, the folks didn't know what to do with it. And Hudson Taylor was trying to defend his position, C.T. Studd trying to defend their position, while they were saying, but these women have been gifted by God. They are here proclaiming the gospel. People's lives are being trans transformed. The churches are being established. And so when we tell the history of mission, it's often the heroes who were women. And Judson going to Burma, Betsy Stockton, a former slave, establishing a vibrant church community in Hawaii, Lottie Moon, a Baptist, going to China, Mary Slessor in Nigeria, Amy Carmichael in India, Gladys Award in China, Helen Rosevere in Africa, and so it goes on and on and on, these women of faith. It's like Paul's epistle, Romans 16, the Hall of Fame of women faithful to the gospel of Christ. And it's why, I have to tell you, I passionately believe in this, of these amazingly gifted women who need to be affirmed and encouraged. It's why I wrote the book, Equal to Rule. And it's going for a special deal of a fiver, if you want to. <laughs> I have met many people in my time who have who have expressed what I'm talking about in an amazingly public way. When I was ministering here, I, we, we had a, a really quite an extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God when we went to Port Rush with, I don't know, many hundred of the church went off to Port Rush for a weekend, and the Spirit of God just came upon us in such a way that I remember there were members of committee converted at the communion service. That's true. And it began to profoundly affect the life of the church. And at the same time, I was reading a book called Body Life by Ray Stedman from Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto in the Silicon Valley in California. And I had the opportunity to go and meet with him and with the members of that church. First of all, I was absolutely fascinated because I was sent by the church and being funded to go there. I was asking them sort of serious questions like, I remember the opening couple of questions was, how, how many members do you have in the church? And he said to me, I have no idea. I mean, many people come to worship on Sunday. I don't know, he said. Is that really important? <laughs> For us, these things are important. Statistics, numbers, how many. He wasn't interested in any of this. He was interested in creating a community of faith that was an authentic witness to the gospel of Christ. And so he did. With people sharing their gifts in terms of community, terms of body life. It was really a powerful witness. But we were privileged to bring him here. Uh, and he preached in this pulpit for one weekend. Bless him. He, 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 did, he thought he had to be culturally sensitive and he didn't wear his Hawaiian shirt to preach. I mean, he wore a suit and tie and we, we just laughed, you know. He, he is just so lovable, Ray. He's gone to glory now. He had an awful background. His father deserted the family. He was asthmatic. He dropped out of college. He rode bulls at rodeos. But he was so warm and affable as a follower of Jesus. And he worked really among hippies and flower people and built this amazing church, Peninsula Bible Church. And we got to know each other extremely well. And I have to tell you this so that you will understand the significance of what I'm saying. We were poles apart theologically. Like he was a classic dispensationalist, and some of you are, I know. And, and you know, he believed in Israel and Zion. Uh, you know, he was a Zionist, and 
You know, he was into rapture theology, and he, he, he knew I wasn't. And so when he was leaving me, he would provoke me every time by saying, I will see you here, there, or in the air. <laughs> but, but we just loved each other. I just loved that man. But it was more than just an emotion. He actually did things that were breathtaking to me. In Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, which is a mainline established church, which was his immediate neighbor, they called a young evangelical minister into an established church that had not a history of evangelicalism. So what did Ray Steadman do, who was the next door neighbor? This would never happen in Ireland, by the way. What did he do? He got 200 members of his church to go and join Menlo Park, to be a base, a core, an encouragement a support to this new minister as he began this extraordinary ministry in Menlo Park, which is now one of the largest evangelical churches in America, led by John Ottberg. That's what it means to love brothers and sisters. We, you can't imagine ministers and elders agreeing that we'll get rid of 50 churches because there's a Church of Ireland church and a young evangelical rector who's been called Let's send off 25 or 30 of our believers because love is not just in words. Love is in action. We will act sacrificially so that a new community of faith can be established. This is the mark. This, will, this is what's going to wow the world that we express the very nature and character of God revealed in Jesus Christ who sacrificed everything for us in order that he might redeem us. That kind of love. Will you just watch this for a moment on the screen? sold or faked that kind of love it always gives itself away that kind of love is wiser than the wisest sage its innocence makes me ashamed till I'm not sure that I can take that kind of love Pride and hatred cannot stand that kind of love. Greater love hath no man than that kind of love. It won't be kept unto itself. It spreads its charm, it casts its spell till no one's safe the side of hell. From that kind of love Love rejected and ignored Held in chains behind closed doors The stuff of legend and of song and Deep down, everybody longs For that kind of love Oh, that kind of love So kind of love though it only takes a child to show that kind of love widows smile and strong men weep and little ones play at its feet the deaf can hear and the blind can see that kind of love Love triumphant, love on fire, love that humbles and inspires, love that does not hesitate with no conditions, no restraints, that kind of love, oh, that kind of
measured by that kind of love. Even stars fall from the sky. Everything will fall in time except those things that cannot die. That kind of love. Oh, may you be remembered by that kind of love. Will you please stand? I want you to close your eyes and bow your head before the God who is love. And I want you to raise your hands gently just in his presence. Palms out. And invite God to come and by his Holy Spirit pour his love into your heart. That we might love sacrificially and actually do something. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.